Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. <laughs> Theme music by Haddon Kime. So, James Kennedy, how are you? I'm great. Uh, how are you? I am great. Things are going quite well here. I had its journalism project time at Northwestern University, which means it's time to do a profile of Matt Bird every time that uh, it is time for journalist journalism school profiles everybody wants to do a profile of matt bird because you get to hang out and drink and then uh what are you matt talking about are you show. like some kind of like famous figure in evanston i, I don't understand I this am. at all yeah i am and uh i host you know at one point during covid i was like oh it looks like they're gonna shut down my trivia night because of covid and someone was like uh matt you have the most popular evening in town and I'm like, what? Seriously? He's like, yes, you draw the largest crowd in town of anybody in Evanston. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, then I guess I guess it does make sense to shut me down because of COVID. Whenever people at Northwestern have to do profiles of people, then I am always one of the first people profiled. And I've been profiled at least six times, both print and video for uh, these things. I also, they wrote about me in the Evanston Roundtable. They wrote about me in the, one of our actual two newspapers. But yeah, so Mr. New York comes to town and just bigfoots his way in and just like immediately becomes the man about town. This is like a Doc Hollywood. This is a Tulsa King. But their small town values have shown me the error of my ways. And now I'm it's time that I learn to, you know, live right and learn to love, learn to reject all the horrible New York values. (laughs) The thing you have to learn to love is to be profiled annually. (laughs) That, That that's a lesson you have to learn that it's okay to be profiled all the time it is but uh yes but how are you james kennedy more importantly i realize you you get to live outside this media spotlight you get to live outside the media glare that shines so brightly on me and you get to actually just live your life i can't tell you how much i envy you people what uh (laughs) what are you doing outside of the media spotlight james kennedy Oh, oh just uh you know just sitting in my hole so james are we allowed to announce your third novel yet Yes, we are. Yeah. We are? Bride of the Tornado. It's also out on Quirk Books. It's going to come out in August. I'm very excited about it. It's another uh, book for adults. It's not a YA or a children's book like The Order of Oddfish was. It's it's more along the lines of Dare to Know. A lot more straightforward than Dare to Know and a bit more um, the horror tip, which uh, my agent and my editor tell me is good because horror is big right now. Uh, but of course, since I'm doing it, it's not straightforward horror. If that was the case, then I could comfortably know that my kids would be going to college. Instead, yes. I have to do it in a ridiculous, you know, messed up way. Delete all that. Just like, yeah, it's horror. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll talk about the premise of it in a, a future podcast. Yeah, it's called Bride of the Tornado. And if, if a title like that doesn't make you want to buy it, what will? I've read the novel. It is very well written. It is very disturbing. It is exactly, I think, what you intended for it to be. And I cannot wish you more success with this novel. I am so excited for you to have number three coming down the pike. Um, So speaking of novels getting published, well, how does one get a novel published? There's a little thing, if you're going to do it traditionally, called an agent. And that's what our episode today is about. Yes. Nice segue. So, yes. So I was having a conversation with a friend who is a aspiring novelist and has written two and a half novels and is getting better and better, but is really frustrated that he cannot get an agent. And I was like, well, I 
can tell you about my experience, but my experience is not that typical. And I said, and I, I didn't, as with everything else good that has ever happened to me, it sort of fell into my lap and I didn't really have to work for it, like so many things. And I'm like, but you know who did work for it? Who worked for it, worked his ass off twice to get an agent is James Kennedy. And I said, we had it, we had a topic that we were going to cover in this episode. And I'm like, no, let's stop. Let's push that back before my friend gives up and just goes ahead and self-publishes his novels, which he is on the verge of doing. I said, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I said, let's go ahead and see if we can get you an agent with see if we can get you an agent the James Kennedy way. <laughs> the traditional way. Hashtag the James Kennedy way. Trademark, copyright, reserved. I, I'm nothing if not traditional. You um, are and, you are the most traditional person I know, James. You are currently wearing <laughs> a, a pilgrim outfit that you wear at all times. <laughs> and um, uh, the funny thing is, that I, I do have a, a very deep streak of traditionalism, like underneath a lot of the other stuff about me. I mean, it it, it you, you joke, but it, it is there, like well hidden, but it is there. It's, um, it's true. Well, so. Let's say you have an unpublished manuscript. I mean, should we just get into this? Yeah. Okay. So what? So let's let's talk about the James Kennedy way, and I can jump in and talk about the Matt Bird way and various points because I had I have gotten various agents and managers and publishers in various ways, traditional and non-traditional, over the course of my writing career. But let's let's go ahead and start with what you have to say, James. Well, I mean, because I mean, I think maybe a lot of people who listen to this podcast maybe are aspiring novelists. Now, I can't speak to screenwriting. I don't know anything about that. I haven't done it, but I can speak to getting a novel traditionally represented. So maybe this will help some people. Um, let's say you have an unpublished manuscript you'd like to take to a big traditional publisher. You, you don't want to self-publish it. And I, I, a lot of people self-publish and they get have a lot of success, but it takes a lot of work. And money. And there's so much that goes into a book. Yeah, and money, like designing the book, typesetting the book, uh, having an editor look over the book, no matter how much you think you've edited it, you haven't enough. Like I, having, I, I just finished copy having edits. Several editors in... look over the book, having a exactly. copy editor and a and a what are the other kinds of editors? I forget. I know I've worked as them, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean, get confused I, as to the terminology. This is the third time in my life I've ever gone through a thorough copy edit on Bride of the Tornado, and it is so humiliating how little yes. you realize you know about the technical aspects of writing. And how you can't, you, like, I consistently get lay and lie wrong every single time. <laughs> Stuff like that. Even in that case, like, they are, like, cutting me a lot of slack because this is first person and colloquial. But even still, there's, like, a bunch of stuff that just, like, leaps out. My wife buys the books for Evanston Public Library. And at one point, someone came up and says, I self-published a book about Edgar Allan Poe. And I'm a local author. I live here in Evanston. And you didn't buy my book. Why did you not buy my book? And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I usually, you know, like to buy locally published books, tell me more about your book or, you know, give me a copy of your book. And he gave her a copy of the book and she's like, well, I'm not going to buy it. And he's like, what do you mean you're not going to buy it? And she said, will you misspell Edgar Allan Poe in <laughs> the name of your self-published book about Edgar Allan Poe? You misspell Allen. And so I'm not going to buy your book. <laughs> and the guy was like, oh, well, I guess you're right. Never mind. <laughs> and then, that is great. So, so you need a copy editor. You need a copy editor. But I have a friend, his name is uh, Bill Shun. He has like some success uh, in traditionally published circles, but he had a book called The Accidental 
terrorist. He grew up Mormon, and then he went on Mormon missions. It, it's a fascinating book. Uh, it's called The Accidental Terrorist. It's about like he was kind of questioning Mormonism and decided like he didn't want to be a Mormon. But then like he kind of got like convinced to like come on, finish out your mission by his superior. You know, because they go in twos. You know, everybody's seen the Book of Mormon. And, but then he, but then when he had like a junior that he was supposed to take care of, that person said, "I'm leaving. I don't want to do this anymore." And he was like back in it to win it, and so. He that but his junior like got on an airplane was going to leave the place we were out of the mission at and so he called in a bomb threat uh, to the <laughs> airport in order to keep this plane from going and of course the the country that it was in Canada found, like figured it out and he had to go to Canadian jail which sounds hilarious uh, um and the and uh, but the Mormon Church intervened he's not a Mormon anymore but he basically it's this fascinating book like it, it in a in a any just world this book. The Accidental Terrorist by Bill Shun would be traditionally published. Uh, it's a great book. It, it talks about like what it's like to be a Mormon missionary, but it's also kind of weaves it in with like the history of Mormonism throughout all of American history. It's absolutely fascinating. But he couldn't get anybody to publish it, and he was traditionally represented by a big deal agent, Barry Goldblatt. Um, and so uh, I've heard of him. So yeah, exactly. He has a series of blog posts that we'll link to in the show notes about like what is it like to really to self-publish a book and to do it right you know get a, a good hardcover get good cover design have it properly copy edited have it properly designed all that and it takes a lot yeah it takes a lot and and basically he was at the end of it all he was in the hole i know there's ways probably to, to publish on the cheap you know maybe your edgar Allan poe friend is probably like that but <laughs> let's say that you don't want to be like that you don't want to be in the hole and you want to do it properly and you want it to look good well, I, I I just want to talk about. Yeah. I, I really want to talk it from the very basics. I, yeah. I don't want to presume any knowledge. So the first thing is, I, I think a lot of people don't know this. I really want to start. Basically, you can't contact the publisher directly. You don't call up Random House. You don't call up you know uh, Simon and Schuster. You have to get what's called a literary agent. No publisher really is going to talk to you or read your stuff if it's not represented by a literary agent. The agent is somebody who usually lives in New York and they handle all the negotiation with the publisher and the legal stuff, dramatic rights for what you've written and a million other things that a typical author doesn't have the competence, frankly, to do. And they also take 15% of what you make. So I'm on my second agent right now. But to find my first agent way back when I used something called uh, agentquery.com. Like I want to give news you can use to everybody who's listening to, to find an agent. The, um, the, what I used was agentquery.com. It's like this directory of agents and their contact info and what they're looking for. And all you need to do is enter into that website, what genre you're writing for, et cetera. And that website will spit back to you a list of all the agents who are interested in that kind of thing and who fits your criteria. Then you need to write what's called a query letter. A query letter is basically a brief email uh, that described when I was pitching my first novel, a literal like piece of physical human mail. Uh, um, it's a brief email now that describes your manuscript, outlines its intended audience, and maybe gives a few relevant facts about yourself and your publishing history. Like maybe if you had some short stories published before that, or you've graduated from some creative writing program. Uh, and maybe I should, uh, we should link to my query letter for my first novel. Oh, uh, that'd be great. Order of Oddfish uh, for this. But you say your query letter should say if you've published short stories or if you've gotten a degree, but, you know, and we're going to link to your query letter, but you had not done either of those things. So you could not say, I've published short stories. You could not say, I have well, a degree. What no, could you say? I, I had one short story published in the Chicago Reader um, oh, okay. in their fiction issue. So that was it. How did you get that story published? I sent it in. 
Okay. Yeah, they had a call for, hey, it's our fiction issue. And I was like, I've written some fiction. And so, I mean, I had been sending out those short stories to all those kind of literary quarterlies and stuff like, like you know, that universities, you know, uh, have, you know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah. You know, oh, sure. Yeah. And but uh, I was getting no luck with that, or any like sending it to the New Yorker and, and all that. Um, but I, you know, I, I wasn't part of that culture, which I think, like, you know, I, I wasn't part of any. I, I wonder if those literary journals, they kind of, if you don't have an MFA or you're working towards one, they just won't even read you. Who knows? But I got into Chicago Reader, I guess, because I'm a Chicagoan, and uh, it was a cover story. Uh, it was called The Lamb of Hell Hamburger. It's a good story. You should check it out. Uh, 2004 okay. issue. That's the first I've heard of it. Okay. So using agentquery.com and other resources. So this site still exists? Yeah, yeah. And actually, there's another website, www.manuscriptwishlist.com, which I think is a little hipper and more up-to-date than agentquery.com. But using those resources, you put together a list of agents who seem right for your project and break them down into like dream agents, uh, second choice agents, and third tier agents. And you research the agents on their agency's websites and see where there are articles about them or interviews with them online and tweak your query letter for each agent you're querying based on the interviews that you've read and uh, what that agent expects in a query and stuff like that. Because some agents uh, want the first 10 pages of your book in the body of the email, uh, or maybe some some of them want a synopsis, et cetera. You got to find out. It's very important to find out what each agent wants and to provide it. Um, you you can't just like blast out an email uh, a form email to a bunch of people that just says dear agent you know I think you'll be interested in this don't send uh, next thing don't send out all your queries at once uh, pick a mixture of like first choice agents and second choice agents and send the queries out in batches because you're probably going to get rejected by that first batch but that will probably make you tweak that query letter over time. And you don't want to shoot your wad with all the dream agents at once. As for response times, like what are they going to get back to these queries? Uh, some agents might get back to you within the hour. Uh, others might never respond, but generally they take one to four weeks to get back to you. So you further tweak your query email in manuscripts based on your rejections. And you might get, some agents just might send you a form rejection, but others might give you notes. Those are very valuable. Uh, and tweak your query email and your manuscripts based on you know those, what they say. I mean, don't fall into good little boy uh, syndrome and do everything that anybody ever says you should change your manuscript for. You have to have your own vision and stay true to that. However, if a bunch of people say the same thing about it, like, hey, nobody puts out you know uh, two hundred thousand word sci-fi novels by a first-time novelist, you know, maybe you should cut it down a little bit. Um, so you repeat until you find an agent you know who gets you. But you don't want to settle for an agent who isn't the right fit. And I should say those notes are valuable, but they're also annoying as hell. Like you're like you're like you know because like you you're preparing to be a runner. And it's like well you know if somebody tells me they'll pay me ten million dollars for my idea, but they want me to make a change, I don't want to make you know gee will I do it for those ten million dollars? Will I sell out for just a measly ten million dollars? And then you find out the actual reality of it is people are going like well maybe I'll represent you if you make a bunch of changes you don't want to make. And then I'll consider, you know, reading the full thing. I'll consider representing you. And then maybe 30 steps down the line, you would get money. And you're like, and you're getting $25,000. You're getting conflicting yeah. notes from, from different people saying, you have to change this. You have to change this. You have to change this. And they don't match up. And you're like, now, now I have to start compromising. I have started compromising <laughs> so early on in the process. It is tremendously frustrating. 
Yeah, I mean, and I'll talk about my story with compromise and how I dealt with that. And you might guess how that went. Uh, um, So, um, (laughs) so, but you have you have to repeat until you find an agent who gets you. Like, like the uh, a, a bad agent who doesn't understand you is worse than no agent at all. I know that's hard to hear, but it's absolutely true. But to repeat, every agency and agent even is going to have different guidelines. Sometimes you have to check out, you know, the various places in the web where the agent or agency has spoken about what they want and to figure out what to do. Obviously, there's an agent or agency's own website, and usually they have their own page on that website. Um, different agents might have different guidelines. Anyway, if your book sells, the agent will take 15% of what you make. That's standard. That's not negotiable. But just to make sure the agent doesn't ask you for any money up front. That's the reddest of red flags. And there has been a profusion of scam agencies lately. And so an agent should only make money when you make money. This bears repeating. All money should flow only one way, towards you. Editing fees? Nuh-uh. Reproduction fees? Reading fees? Get that trash out of here. And that's 15%. 1-5%, not 50%. Yes. <laughs> if uh, if your agent says like, oh, I need a 15% and you're like, I'm sorry, what do you say? He's like, 15%. <laughs> you're like, oh, okay, I'm I'm sure he said 15. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't 50. I just, he didn't speak very clearly. If your agent wants 50%, then uh, you're screwed. That's a red flag. <laughs> yeah. So rejections, they're going to happen. Uh, for the order of Oddfish, I was rejected by over a hundred agents before I found an agent for that book. Uh, some people have gotten agents more quickly, but this is definitely could be an endurance thing. And with me, I've never had any contact in the publishing industry. I had to go from cold calling alone, uh, or the equivalent of cold call, these cold query. They, it wasn't like a friend of mine who knew somebody who could, you know, you know, get me a, a meeting before the fact. I would do school visits to talk about the order of oddfish and, oh, what is it like to be a writer? And in my early days, I would bring around a poster that I had made constructive all of the rejections that i had ever gotten like and it, back then it was like on the different letterheads of all the different agencies and i was like hey look you know it's a lesson about perseverance you got to get rejected a bunch of times until i realized like this did not have the desired effect kids would just see that poster <laughs> and they would just say oh this guy's a loser like he made it in <laughs> yeah. by the skin of his teeth it, you know like i, I don't know why do i gotta listen to this guy so yeah even though the lesson might not sink into a seventh grader it should sink into you you have to have the tenacity and unkillableness of a cockroach. Um, I I quickly, I tried doing school visits just once and I realized like my advice is poison for students. Like the last thing, you know, because I'm talking about like you have to be audience focused. Like if you are 12, you should not be audience focused. And I could just, I could just see these poor brains being twisted by my cynical advice and, and I'm like, oh, God, I'm never doing another school visit again. And I never did. You know what? I, I think it's a shame because there is I have when I was teaching at Northwestern University for a gifted uh, class of science fiction and fantasy writing. I taught this three week course in science fiction and fantasy writing. It was like eight in the morning until like three in the afternoon, Monday through Friday for three weeks. Just me and these like brilliant kids. And I adapted so many of your lessons, but it was like, it wasn't like right towards your audience. It was more like head, heart, gut, yeah, active protagonist, have objects in a scene that get exchanged. Like that's the kind of stuff you should have been talking about at <laughs> yes, a, you're a right. school visit. And that, that, I mean, that's the stuff that's news they can use because what they have is that they've got wild, amazing, unique 
insane ideas and they just have to make them something that's readable you, you yeah. know and, and like all of you, the, your lessons that you give you, basically basically I, I, I mean, school visits are their own form of purgatory. I love doing them, but I just, because I got really good at doing them, but that took some time. If you don't love it, then don't do it. But I don't want to shock you, but this advice. is one more thing in life that Matt Bird tried once and didn't master right away and gave up on. I mean, at any point in this process, did you think, I guess my novel sucks? Like, how could you not have thought that after 100 Agents had turned it down? Like, how can you not go like, oh, I'm just not cut out to be a novelist. My novel must suck. <laughs> no it's a great book i believed in it um and i i i i like how you're like uh doing a low-key like <laughs> like slam on the book here but no I not, not at all but how could you not have thought that like i mean you know just listening to the universe you know how could you not go like the universe is telling me that my novel sucks because i have great confidence i have self-confidence um, you have to just have a tremendous amount of confidence. And you have to, uh, and did you, but you also read stories of other people and th- how much they had to go through. And so you just figure, well, I guess this is the price you pay. So no, yeah. I, I never believed it sucked. Um, I mean, I had a lot of readers. I had a lot of eyes on it, people who really liked it, you know, who, I mean, obviously, yeah, they're your friends are going to, you know, maybe you can't trust them totally. But I mean, I, I was I thought I was pretty sure I had something special and I was glad that I uh, stuck, stuck to it. So, I mean, no, the universe isn't telling you something if you get rejected again and again and again, not necessarily. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, again, I never had that sort of, uh, that sort of self-confidence, but uh, okay. The whole time you were trying to sell order of Vodfish, you were the whole time you were trying to get re- representation for order of Vodfish, Did you have people going like, well, you know, send me your next novel. You think you're a promising writer, but I'm not crazy about this. Um, about this one, you'll write another one and send it to me. And you just weren't doing that. You were just, I mean, you kept pushing just Order of Oddfish without writing a second novel for a long time, right? Yeah. If they said that, I don't remember it. Maybe, maybe somebody said, you know, like I'd be interested in seeing what your next project is, but I didn't. Yeah, I just probably thought that was a nicety. Yeah. Um, I had a novel written, I think was my point of view. Like, like I've already done the work. I know that it's good and it was good. And so like, I just need to find somebody to represent it. So, so, okay. Let's say you get your agent. So I got an agent. Uh, she was uh, Lisa Bankoff in international creative management. This was a coup. Uh, this is a legendary agent. She's been around forever. I was living in Japan at the time. I had to print out the novel, The Order of Oddfish, and send it from Japan, hard copy. Wait, wait. So let's go back. Let's go back. So you are, so you're how old at this point? Mm, I guess I am 33. You're 33. Okay. The age that Jesus died. So you are, you are (laughs) setting often, frequently characters in literature are 33 years old because it is the Mm -hmm. age that Jesus died. So then, you have decided to become a novelist somewhat blatantly. You know, this is not, you are not a spring chicken. You are not a teenager. You are, you know, you have decided to become a novelist. You are living in Japan. You, you write the whole novel first. So you. Right. So I had written the novel before I went to, went to Japan and I was querying agents before I went to Japan. Um, and I, and I was it. like, 
Well, I was getting responses from agents and I would have them like kind of string me along for a while, like for months and months and months. So yeah, we're reading because here's the thing. An agent will like, they'll sometimes they'll get your query letter and they'll say, that sounds great. Send me the first three chapters or that sounds great. Send me the whole manuscript. And then you have to wait for who knows how long a day, a month, two months, three months for them to get back to you. And then you have to write those emails. Like, just wanted to check in, see if you've uh, gotten around to reading the Order of Office yet. No hurry! But, you know, I just wanted to ping you to kind of touch base. And so much of that, so humiliating for a 33-year-old adult, adult man. It, it, so I continued to edit and polish this the Order of Oddfish when I was in Japan. And I was writing other things, too. But I was continuing to query from there. And then... I mean, I never stopped trying, and and the uh, and I finally got a dream agent, uh, Lisa Bankoff. How did you only end up querying a dream agent a hundred agents in? So you said you queried over a hundred agents. Why had you not done this dream agent yet, or had or was she this the was first not, time you had approached her? It was the first time, and it's because she did not represent YA. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what turned out is that her protege, Tina Wexler, was interested in representing YA. Lisa read it and decided to represent me. But I, I think Tina, who is now like a big deal agent in her own right, was also working on my case. They were great. They had a bunch of really good ideas of how to improve the manuscript. I I, mean, I remember being in the break room at the Japanese high school that I was teaching at. There it was, the email saying, I'm going to represent you. And I remember walking out of work out into like the snowy cold and just like, it finally happened. All my problems in my life are <laughs> over now. Right. <laughs> it's nothing bad will ever happen again. This book will sell for a bazillion dollars and, and I will go from success to success until I die. And the thing is, I mean, I guess there is an alternate reality in which that is the case. Like I, if I play my cards better, that is not what happens. Even after you get an agent, your problems aren't over. Your agent might send around your book and no publisher might want it. Um, well, first of all, first, no- I mean, the first thing that happened is an agent can sign you. And then first of all, an agent can sign you and then hit you with a bunch of notes after they sign you. And then you can never satisfy their notes. And so they'll never even send it out. Or you or you satisfy their notes and then they go, yeah, but I've lost interest in this one. Write something else and see if that can pique my interest a little more. And then, of course, even if you write something that eventually totally pleases your agent, and it's I can't tell you how humiliating it is to find out you have to please your own agent after they've already signed you, then they can just they can just not sell it. <laughs> they can just send it out. And nothing is more humiliating for them than to send out a book that doesn't sell. That's the whole reason yes. agents are so reluctant to sign people in the first place. You would go like, well, look, what does it harm you to go ahead and sign me and send out my book? And if it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. Well, they, the only reason people publishing, the only reason editors are willing to read their books is they're going like, oh, everything this agent sends me is good. I always want to buy it. Therefore, this agent mm-hmm. is sending me something new. I know it's going to be good. I know I want to buy it. I'm going to go ahead and read it. And if they say the last thing this agent sent me wasn't good, they're not going to read the next thing that agent sends them. And yeah. that is the whole reason all of this is so hard. If if it was just a matter, if the agents didn't care how good your work was, and they're like, well, I'll send it out, and maybe it'll sell, and maybe it won't. And the agents didn't care how sellable it was, because the agents did not care about their own reputations, then this whole process would be so much easier. 
But there's a tremendous amount of flop sweat on the part of writers. There's a tremendous amount of flop sweat on the part of agents. Agents are afraid mm-hmm. of flopping. And that and that is why they're reluctant to sign you. That is why they are maybe somewhat eager to drop you at certain points, uh, which we have both experienced. But keep going. Oh, yeah. So let's say your agent gave you notes and you agree with the notes, which I did for the order of Oddfish. I made the changes. They sent it out. I said, we feel confident about this. So at first, no publisher would touch the order of Oddfish except for HarperCollins. Now, this is the order of Oddfish is a 115,000 word book. Now, I know I just made a joke earlier about like nobody's going to publish a 200,000 word science fiction novel, but this was a very long novel. It was as long as like the longest Harry Potter book. Um, or maybe a little bit shorter, and nobody would touch it except for HarperCollins. And they said, yeah, we'll publish this. Uh, We'll make an offer, but we want to cut it in half. We want it to be half the size. And my agent said, well, that's the deal. That's what we got. And I said, no, which is my one superpower. (laughs) Matt, (laughs) I don't have many powers in life. But what I do know how to do is, is how to say no and walk away from things I don't like. And I knew that if I had said yes to HarperCollins and found some way to take that novel and shank it down to half its length, it would not be the novel that I want published. And I would have published something I was ashamed of. And I would never have been able to live with myself the rest of my life. And it's it's no good to say like, oh, that book that you wrote, uh, yeah, it came out. It, it was okay. It's like, oh, there's a much better version that's in a Word doc on my computer. You know, you don't ever want to live a life of regret like that. And I know, Matt, that you're a big person for, like, take the note, a, a, you know, like, d- be disciplined by your masters. But I, I there's a limit to that. And I, there's a, and I think I'm justified because even though The Order of Oddfish is not a bestseller, there's so many people, if you see on Goodreads, who are like, this is my favorite book of all time. And I wanted it, it just I wanted to have at least for those, even, even if it's a small audience, I wanted to be something perfectly for a small audience, even if it had to be that. So I walked away from the deal. This is why my agent was amazing. They said, okay, what? He said, we're going to do some crazy jujitsu. What they did is they offered it to another publisher in England as is that publisher in England made an offer. They said, yes, we like this as is to be published in England, not in America. Then she came back to the publishers in America said, look, they want it in England. What the hell's wrong with you people? And Delacorte at random house said, we'll buy it as is. Wow. That's a good agent. Yes. It was a, a sweet deal too. I mean, it was it was a uh, it it was a fair amount of money, and I was able to like pay off all of my loans and have something, you know, set aside. And I was I was very happy about it. But here's the thing that nobody tells you: you can lose your agent. <laughs> you, you, your problems are not over. So like after that, a, a bunch of other stuff happened. And the the thing is, I was obstreperous with Random House at, at Delacour. I was a bad author. I demanded too much i i demanded them to do more for me than debut authors should demand i wanted them to treat me like jk rowling and i was not i think i made myself noxious to them i think they were like i wash our hands of this guy and uh the agent was like oh god so lisa bankoff was my original agent and then along the way uh since tina wexler was so interested in representing ya clients uh i got transferred from Lisa Bank from being Lisa Bankoff's client to Tina Wexler's client. 
a couple years go by, I li- I propose my next project, and she says, you know what? I think we got to go our separate ways. And yeah. I was like, what? I lost my agent, and it was so humiliating. And I yes. had one book that had been traditionally published, and I had to get busted right down to querying again. Nobody was interested. And also I was damaged goods because I had already published something. I had been, you know, I had an agent and now I'm querying again. Well, what's up with that? You know, it's not like a good track record. Yeah. I mean, Um, is it, I mean, I'm sure in some ways it's easier in some ways it's harder. It's, I mean, I think it's like anytime it's like, you know, is it easier to date if you've been divorced? (laughs) You know, it's like, well, on the one hand, Mm -hmm. I've proven I can do it. On the other hand, I've proven that I failed once. So I got some good news and some bad news. And so, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, obviously it's hard for you to know how much it helped you or hurt you to have been previously represented. But in the end, you know, you were eventually able to get represented again. All right. So then you lose your agent. And by the way, at least your agent told you that she was dropping you. Like, uh-huh. Because <laughs> I lost my managers in film and they never, they just said, okay, send us your next thing. You know, they said, no, we can't sell anything. Yeah, they never even said that. They just said like, okay, we sent out your, they said, we sent out your stuff, you know, to various people to try to buy it. And then that was it. And then I'm like, Mm -hmm. so hi, it's me again, Matt. What did those people say that you sent it out to? Nothing. No response. Finally, I'm like, a year later, I'm like, "Um, hi, it's Matt again. Like, uh, you know, are, do you still represent me? Like, should I be sending you stuff? And they're like, what do you got? Send it. And I send it in. No response. And, you know, and then eventually I'm like, oh, I guess I've been dropped, but they're just not going to tell me that. What, you know, what I eventually discovered was that I had been spec farmed. Are you Mm. familiar with this concept? No, I'm not. So I think this is something that exists in the book world. It's far more pervasive and insidious in the movie world where they were like, well, we just want to have a first look at anything you write. Basically, Mm. if you write something and sell it yourself which is eventually what i had to do but they said if you write something and sell it yourself then we're going to swoop in and take our it's 10 percent in the film industry instead of 15 percent. we're going to swoop in and take our 10 percent, and we also just want the right to have a first look at anything you do in case we love it so you are on mm-hmm. our spec farm you are on the farm where we read your speculatively written work and anything you know and we can just sign and you know it's humiliating for several reasons but one of the reasons it's humiliating is really it's like oh you know given that they are not committing to actually sending out anything i send them they can sign a lot more people so maybe they weren't that selective when they signed me in the first place Mm. because they're just like oh you know here's somebody who we officially representative we're going to get 10 percent of any money he makes for himself and if we want to at least we can occasionally look at what he's writing and decide if we want to sell it and then he's just one of our one of the sprouts growing on our spec farm that we can harvest at any time or not harvest or just let mm-hmm. my fallow. It's a tremendously humiliating aspect of the film industry, the aspect of spec farming. So at least you were not spec farmed. At least you were told by Tina, she had the great forthrightness to say, no, I don't think this is working out. I think you should find another agent. And you did. One of the most humiliating things is that uh, the person who lived upstairs to me at the time uh, Mary Wynn Hader, uh, also, also a YA author, she got Tina Wexler to represent her. <laughs> and she was like living right up to, so it's like Tina Wexler's 
representation just moved 15 feet upwards uh, in, in the a building where I live. James, I don't know how to tell you this, but there was one time someone said, yes, I want to be your agent. I want to represent you for selling fiction books. This is the only time this ever happened. Um, guess who it was? Tina Wexler. It was Tina Wexler. <laughs> Amazing. So I've got, I found my notes from my meeting with Tina Wexler. Um, yeah. She didn't actually say, I want to represent you, but she said, we had been talking at a party and she had said, oh, do you have any interest in writing novels? And I said, yeah, I do have some interest. And she said, oh, I'd love to meet with you about it. And then, so here's what I did. I'll just go ahead and jump in and say, yeah. so I said, all right, Tina Wexler once talked to me about writing novels. I wasn't sure I wanted to write novels, but I said, you know, I know I should be, this is something that I should be able to do. And it's something that you can do for free. You, they, some, yeah. Unlike make, making movies. Exactly. You know? And so then what I did was I went ahead and looked her up online. And I think just about every agent, you're going to find profiles of them online where people interview them and ask them, what are you interested in? What what sort of stuff do you want to do? And so these were the notes I took. I said, she said at one point, I'm interested in moody kids, teens trying to be perfect, awkward girls and goofy boys, novels and verse, novels and comics, sports stories. I love it all. And then later I found somewhere else that said, she is primarily interested in acquiring young adult and middle grade fiction, especially edgy young adult fiction and humorous middle grade fiction. Another place said she's particularly interested in popular science, food, pop culture, memoir, religion, art history, women's issues, however defined, and modernized retellings of popular myths and legends. On the adult side, she's looking to acquire yada, yada, yada. So then I found, I just cut and pasted into a document all these things where various people were talking about what this one agent wanted to publish. And I'm like, it can't be this easy, can it? Like, you know, I just have to sit oh down. Oh my god, this is the ultimate bird move to, to like just like take all this external data. Like the story doesn't come from within you, from some like urgent thing that you need to express or some weird problem you need to solve in yourself, which is how it should be. It's just like, well, how can I please some external criteria? This is the most Matt Bird thing ever. Go on. So then this is what I pitched to her based on reading all that. And it's amazing. Oh I never did this. It's amazing. I never did this when we were doing free story ideas, because this was a classic free story idea. So this was before Joe Hill published his novel Horns. So this okay. was shows you how old this was. And it was very similar to that. The plot was the title, the title of the book probably would just be Trickster. And we begin with the kid and mom. They get word that the kid's no good dad has died. The kid starts growing horns. His mom reveals that his dad had horns too. Then the kid keeps almost getting killed in various seeming accidents, but he is saved by a raven, a monkey, a coyote, and a spider. Save him from four different attacks or accidents or things where people are trying to suspect these people are trying to kill him. He realizes that he is a trickster god and starts to fear that he is Satan but eventually realizes that he is probably Pan, a reincarnation of Pan. And then somehow, I, I have no idea how I got here, but I say Prometheus is behind it all. But so then I, <laughs> so then I pitched this to Tina Wexler just based on, I think I, I basically wrote this based on what she said she was interested in. And uh-huh. I said, this is, sounds like a novel she would be interested in. And I pitched on it, and I think on Leica, of course, and on starting America all over again in the Mall of America after nuclear holocaust. But the main thing I pitched on was Trickster, and she loved it. And she said, yep, I want to read your full manuscript, send it to me. And it was a great meeting. And then I got home and I said, I don't want to write novels. Writing novels is hard. And so I emailed her back. I said, thank you so much for meeting with me. I think that I will be in touch once I actually write these, but right now... 
I might be working on other projects first or something like that. And then that was the last contact I had with her. <laughs> wow. You, you really know how to fuck it up, don't you? <laughs> no, no, I know how to create opportunities and then realize that I nailed it, my meeting. But uh, then I realized I wasn't actually interested in pursuing that opportunity. And I never thought of Trickster again until today when I was like, oh, yeah, what did I pitch to Tina Wexler? Let me let me finish my story of how I got to my second agent and then we'll we'll go into broader uh, themes. But so uh, we, years went by. I wrote a bunch of other books. I kept querying them, querying them, had two kids, started up the film festival. I think it's it kind of single-handedly in a way kept the Order of Oddfish in print because I would essentially go on a book tour every year. Um, but I was like, oh, I need to write another children's book. I need to write another children's book. And then I find I cold queried John Cusick at Folio Literary. How did you know who that was? Just looking at agentquery.com and manuscript wishlist. Like I was still just churning through it and just getting rejected and, and, and getting people to read my stuff and waiting for months and them saying no and all that stuff. It, it's just such a waiting game. You have to be, you have to have a, a butt of steel. Maybe some people get snatched up immediately, but I don't think that's the norm. Oh no. He saw the, this one project I was doing. He was like, I like this, but I don't think it's quite for me. What else you got? And so I sent him another thing and he was like, oh, this I can sell, I think, but then he didn't because it was Bride of the Tornado and he tried to sell it as YA, but it wasn't YA. And he was like, well, what else you got? And luckily for years, I had just been churning out novels and putting them in my drawer. And so I said, well, I've got this weird unpublishable thing that nobody's going to like called Dare to Know. He's like, this I can sell. And well, it wasn't did, called Dare to Know. It had an eight word name. <laughs> yeah. At the time it was called, you know, my name, look up the number, but um, he sold it. And then we sold the film rights and, and, you know, a, a lot of good things happened. You changed the title. Most importantly. Yeah. Yeah, Matt. Yeah. And so, and then like, and now that thing that he was trying to sell as YA, we decided this is an adult book, Bride of the Tornado. And that's what's coming out in August. That's why these two books are following so hard upon each other. It's not because I'm a fast writer. It's because uh, I had a bunch of shots in my locker. It, my new agent is great, by the way. He's fantastic. But I remember re reading some interview with him and they were like, well, how many people did you sign this year? It's like, oh, I signed six people. This isn't an exact quote, but it was something like uh, four people were personal recommendations uh, one person was somebody who got referred to me by, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the, the sixth one was a, a cold email. Like what was, and I was like, oh, that was me. It just goes to show how unlikely it is to get ahead in this business without connections. Like I have gotten some stuff published without connections. However, it is very difficult and I don't recommend it. And also when I was in the wilderness and I was asking people for the, who did have agents for like, Hey, could you introduce me to your agent? It never worked. I asked you for an introduction to your agent and I sent him what I was working on and he passed on it. Yeah, but I did it. I mean, you asked me to introduce you to my agent. You did everything you could do. What I'm trying to say is that like, even those personal connections aren't enough. Yeah. Um, it, it is. I can't emphasize too much how pitiless of a business this is okay so with your current agent you say that he was a dream agent what was it that of what you knew about him that convinced you he was a dream agent what did you learn about him that said oh if in that case he's my dream agent this is uh we had a phone conversation before he officially took me on 
And the thing that that I really liked is that he said, I don't want to be your agent just for this one novel. I want to be an agent for your career. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was music to my ears. Um, And and then the fact that the guy kept showing him stuff and some stuff he was like, ah, what else you got? I mean, you're going to get that from an agent, but also that he kept reading my stuff. He saw something in me, even if like a particular project wasn't for him. And then the fact that like he went out with something and then nobody bit on it and he said, okay, what else you got? And like, it was like, that was a real big confidence builder that like, even if something I gave him didn't sell to anybody, he still believed me enough to say, okay, what else you got? And he went out, he, you know, got, didn't get any bites and came back and still wanted to work with me. So yeah, he's, he, and also he at uh, Folio, they have a relationship with uh, CAA. And so they're kind of aggressive about selling the dramatic rights. And that's where the money is, is in dramatic rights and not necessarily in, you know, publishing a book. And the fact that they sold the film rights for uh, not just an option, but they sold it uh, for Dare to Know was huge and kind of, you know, transformative for me. Uh, it was a real windfall. And so I, uh, I'm, you know, th- these are dream agent things. And he's, yeah, he's looking but out before for my career that. and not just my work. But before that, before you ever contacted him, did you have any sense that he was going to be your dream agent? No, I mean, before I contacted him, he was just one name on a list of, of many names. Um, okay, so he had not necessarily stood out to you on the, on agentquery.com or wherever I you mean, found his name. I mean, he stood out enough for me to query him, but I don't know. It was so long ago. I mean, this is like go, coming on four years ago now. Like, I don't remember exactly what mood I was in when I contacted him. I, do, I remember he was very responsive. Uh, he got back okay. to me very quickly. Okay. Um, well, that's funny because, I mean, you had said that he took on six new clients that year and only one of them was a slush pile. So he obviously wasn't avidly, you know, seeking out unsolicited submissions, but you, something about you was different. Maybe it was a podcast. Yeah, it was our podcast. Uh, certainly it's helped me get work. Did you know that he had sold books like yours? Were you like, hey, that's a book he sold. That book's like mine. Well, that's the funny thing. He was selling children's and YA at the time. He was not selling adult books and he just happened to be branching out into selling books for adults ah. when I queried him about a kid's thing, um, but he, that he passed on and then on a YA thing that nobody bought. And so, but he said, I, I'm, I, and when I gave him dare to know, I was like, well, you don't really, you know, represent this kind of stuff. He was like, ah, actually, I, I kind of want to represent this kind of stuff. This is right up my alley. So that was a bit of serendipity. Yeah. So you send him a query letter. He says, he emails you back, says, yeah, send me more. You send him more. And then at some point you get on the phone. How did that happen? Well, I sent him more and he said, I, I sent him the frog boy thing that you had read. And he was like, ah, this is, this is really funny. It reminds me of Douglas Adams, but I, I don't think there's a market for this. I was like, okay. Um, and, and he said, what else you got? I sent him Bride of the Tornado, the thing that's about to be published uh, in August. He said, this I can sell. Then, then he said, let's get on the phone and talk. We talk. He, okay. he really sells himself to me. You know, says this whole thing about, about the career, which really stuck in my head. And I mean, I was delighted. And, I, and then I did extra research in on him. And I was like, wow, this guy really is the real deal. I saw that yeah. he had represented uh, Dumplin' by Julie Murphy. And I saw that that had gotten made into you know, a movie. And I was like, oh, gee, a Netflix movie. And I was like, oh, wow. So he can really you know, turn these around and 
you know, not only publish the book, but he can position it in such a way that it can have success selling dramatic rights too. So when you spoke to him on the phone, were you nervous? Were you worried? Like, I don't want to screw this up. I don't want to screw this up. I don't want to screw this up. No, I felt I I was finally getting my due. <laughs> How could I screw it up? He he was the one who was interested in me at that point. So like yeah, I, I felt I felt like oh at last. Uh, I, I was, okay. it, was, and it was a wonderful conversation. He set me at ease. I signed a thing, and then all was well. All was well. Yeah, my agent did not have me sign anything. My agent was like, nope. We don't sign stuff at my agency. We're all free and easy. If you if you want to go somewhere else, that's fine. If we want to go somewhere else, that's fine. And that was fine by me. I don't like signing stuff. I guess most agents want you to sign something. Mm-hmm. So did, in that conversation, did the fact that you'd previously had an agent come up? Like I volunteered the information because I obviously hadn't said it on my query letter, although he did see that I had, you know, previously, I, I did say in my query letter that I had previously published a YA book. And so yeah. I told him who it was and he said, oh yeah, I know her. And that was it. You were not worried that made you look bad? No, no. I mean, he didn't blink an eye. I mean, I think at that point, he just liked what I had given him and he wanted to represent it. Yeah. Starting over was not necessarily something that you were worried made you look bad in his eyes or anything like that. I mean, I guess maybe it's not the first time he's seen such a situation. Who knows? Right. Being busted back down to non-agented is really harrowing. Not having an agent and having something you really believe in is really scary, especially if it's something that the clock is ticking. And you you feel like the relevance is losing power year by year. Like I don't recommend it. So once you have that agent, you must cultivate a good relationship with them and grapple them to thy soul with hoops of steel. Do not fuck it up. Okay, that's <laughs> you it. say that as someone who fucked it up and it worked out okay. But yeah, after taking, well, how long do I have to live on this earth, Matt? Like eight ninety years if I'm lucky. 10 years I spent in the wilderness. Like, yeah. like don't, I, I mean, it, it was a price was paid. Don't do it as I did. So yeah. So I, I went the MFA route and then we had 70 kids who started in my class. And then they said at the end, they're like, okay, now we're going to have you write your final screenplays and we're going to pick 10 of the 70 of you and anoint those 10. And the other 60 are just cut loose and uh, get mm-hmm. no help from us whatsoever. And so I was lucky enough to make it into those 10 and they, you know, gave out awards at the end of the year and I won various awards. And then they said, all right, we're going to send out your, you know, go ahead and write basically pitch letters. And then we will send it out from Columbia to various agents and managers um, to see if they want to represent you. And I got, so it's funny, I was out in LA and I met with my mentor's manager um, and pitched him on The Vandal Won the War and Nerve, my horror screenplay. And he was like, yep, I'll bite. And then, but so no one had told me anything about the business at Columbia. Absolutely nobody tells you anything about the business in an MFA program. And then they, so I had not known that managers would give you notes, that agents would give you notes. And so then I, this guy is like, yeah, I want to sign you. I'm like, okay, great. You know, let's go ahead and do it. But I didn't cancel my other meetings. And I said, okay, well, I've still got these other meetings, but yeah, I'm so glad you want to represent me. I guess we're, we're moving forward with this. And he's like, great. Oh, by the way, my notes will include that I want, well, he said, we're going to definitely add a threesome scene. That was one of the things he said. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to add a threesome scene. <laughs> and uh, like, that's, uh, that's very disturbing to me. And especially never having Wait, known- a threesome is disturbing to you? 
uh, well, it would have been a very rapey threesome scene. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, I know it's like, oh, threesomes are great. Don't get me wrong, but rapey threesomes, not so much. And I was like, well, no, uh, I don't want to do that. And, you know, I was just totally shocked at the whole notion that you could have to change things without actually making any money, you know, just for your manager. And then I went ahead and took a meeting, another meeting that had been previously lined up with a much bigger deal manager. And they, it was a very similar situation to you where, you know, there was one big name, there was a big name manager, and then his sort of lower down the totem pole woman who was actually doing the reading and who actually liked me and who actually chose to represent me and was always sort of rooting for me as he sort of lost interest. And then I went ahead and signed. And then we had the whole experience I talked about before where they sort of gradually lost interest in me. Um, well, they sent me up on a lot of meetings and everything went fine. And then I got cancer, which derailed a lot of stuff. And then I did go ahead and sold my own script and uh, and a couple of things. Well, I could go on and on and on about all the experiences I had. But eventually, you know, I was, they, they did set me up. They kept setting me up with unpaid work, basically, you know, where I was mm-hmm. working for big names, doing big projects, you know, adapting big things. And I was... Um, and you know, they'd go like, good news, you know, you're set up, we've set up the project, you know, you're attached. And I'm like going, Oh, that's good. What is set up worth? They're like, Oh, there's, there's not worth any money. You know, there's no, we're not going to, you know, degrade setting up with money. And then I'm like, Oh, okay. They are, you're attached. Oh, we've got big names attached. I'm like, Oh, what is that worth? Like, what do you mean? You know, you're, you're going to, there's going to be the big payday later on, not, not little paydays now. And, uh, this kept happening. And then eventually, I realized that none of these were going to make me any money at all. And the one, the biggest money job that I had signed on with uh, refused to pay me the money that they actually owed me. And then eventually my managers lost interest in me. And then I changed gears. I started writing, writing advice. I wrote a writing advice book. And then my wife in the meantime had had a big success. So I thought about having my wife on today uh, to join us. She has never been a guest on this podcast. I consider having Betsy on tonight, but she has, you know, you were talking about knowing no one in the industry. Well, Betsy did it the exact opposite way. She knew everybody in the industry. She, you know, started a popular blog and then became a very influential blogger. And she started running Kidlet Drink Nights in New York, where she would bring all of the hip young people involved in children's literature. She would invite them all out for drinks. She would, you know, reserve a big room at some bar in Midtown Manhattan and then invite all of the big agents and editors and authors to come out and schmooze and drink. And she Indeed, know- like there's a like a picture of them doing that on the cover of School Library Journal and a bunch of librarians. They're like a, her and a bunch of other like superstar librarians on the cover, like holding martini glasses or whatever. And a bunch of like fussy librarians wrote in saying, I think it's it's outrageous that these librarians are holding what looks like alcohol on the cover of the school library journal magazine. Do you remember that? (laughs) And then when she finally set up a book, she actually auditioned agents for herself. She was like, (laughs) okay, I know every agent in town and they all love me. And who, which one of them gets to work with me. Now I get to, you know, audition them and see who I want to choose. And so she chose, and she chose very well. She chose an excellent agent who was, she had decided the best agent in town. And then when I decided I want to publish a book of writing advice and I had been burned so badly in my screenwriting career, I said, well, I'm just going to approach Betsy's agent and hope he'll represent me. And I, you know, said, hey, would you be willing to look at this book of writing advice I wrote? And then I gave it to him. And I have always said that he makes less than minimum wage on me. 
he he spent a year selling the secrets of story and he kept sending it out and kept saying no and again that makes him look awful it makes it you know if he's like you know hey want to buy this thing i'm sending out there like uh you know we read that thing you sent us from that bird we didn't buy that why should we buy this one and it was you know but he kept doing it and he was he had this whole plan for a while where he's like all right i think you have to write quick baity pieces for the internet can you rephrase your advice in ways that anger people and we'll try to sell them to Huffington Post <laughs> and we'll try to get you writing some, you know, anger inducing clickbaity articles for Huffington Post that then will, you know, draw attention to you. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll do it. But then there had been someone who had said, I really like this, but I'm about to go on maternity leave, so I won't buy it. And then Stephen was like, whatever happened to that woman who went on maternity leave? Did she ever return from maternity leave? And she had, and he reapproached her, you know, a year later and she bought it, which just takes so much work. But I mean, it's a good example of how much work it takes to be an agent. But also how contingent it is. It seems when a book is out, it's like, oh, this book was always going to come out. You know, like, like oh, Secrets of Story. Who can imagine their bookshelf without Secrets of Story? But in fact, it was very contingent. And there's a lot of people made a lot of decisions like that could have gone one way or the other that made it happen. And it didn't happen for a long time because people made decisions the other way. Um, it's very contingent. It, it's not a just world. It's not like the things that get published are the things that deserve to get published. There is a bit of a crapshoot about it. And I was prepared to self-publish the whole time. And I was working on it. Just you like know, your I've, friend to bring it full circle. Yeah. I've got a bunch of covers that I made where I was going to design the cover myself. And oh, no. I've got a whole oh, stack no. of covers with different with different titles that I worked on aimed at different audiences. I will go ahead and include a link to that in the <laughs> show notes as well. Go to secretsofstory.com. But uh, I, uh, I, w- I worked on all this stuff, but then I you know, really wanted to be traditionally published and I was willing to just wait and wait and wait on my agent. So was I. And, uh, I think you you have to want it. You have to did want you to ever consider? Published. Did you ever consider self-publishing Order of Oddfish? Not even for a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, especially back then, because, you know, Oddfish came out in 2008 and like the real self-publishing renaissance didn't happen until a little bit later than that. And I know that people have had a great experience in it, like Colleen Hoover, I think, was originally self-published and, you know, Hugh Howey. And these are like superstars and bestsellers, but they're also marketing geniuses. Right. If you're not a marketing genius, then you better go to... Um, a traditional publisher and the thing is like that will set you up for all kinds of things i mean it will say on one hand you will be one among many books that, that publisher is publishing you know and you have to kind of jockey for position among them however they can give you opportunities that you would never have i mean a self-published book to get it into say barnes and noble so that somebody can see it facing you know face out on the new releases thing and say oh i'll take a chance on this that's never going to happen if you're self-published so you get dropped by the agent and then you kept writing novels. Did you immediately start, were you just going to bite the bullet and start querying agents again right away? Or was there, was there a dark night of the soul? There's no dark night of the soul. I, I just kept cranking. So immediately uh, you get dropped and you're instantly saying, okay, you know, boom, here I'm back on query.com or back on what's called yep. agent, uh, um, agent what's the website? Agentquery.com, and the next day I've got a list of 100 agents ranked by first choice, second choice, third choice. Yeah, yeah. You have to be so unsentimental and so kind of like you have to have grit. You you Mm -hmm. can't like 
you just have to keep on doing it. I, my uh, daughters hate the little sayings that I have because most of them come from Japan and they're all pessimistic. Like one of them is after the mountain mountains. <laughs> yeah, and I think you get, oh, I'm that. sure like, kids love hearing that from their parents. Yeah. Uh, of the, you know, like you, you've surmounted one challenge. Well, here's the next one. And the next one. And they, they, I told it to Lucy. She had, they had a science fair at her school and uh, she did this fantastic job with it. And she got into regionals. But that just meant a ton more work. And I said to her, after the mountain mountains, and she's heard it from me a million times, and she hates it, but it's true. And another one, a Japanese saying is, three years on a rock, which just means to accomplish anything, like a lot of time has to pass. In which it seems nothing is happening. Yeah. And that's what three years on a rock means. But I mean, I, so I have always famously lacked grit. I just lack grit. I am a quitter. I quit very easily at all things. That and is not true. You have, you have, you have this website, which you just churned out advice for years and years and years. Oh, come on. You, I publish like. It takes I, grit to write a, a book, not a, let alone two books. I got dropped by my screenwriting manager and I said, that's just it for me. I am going to quit screenwriting because I can't imagine the humiliation of having to go back out and re-query, um, especially without having the advantage of Columbia the second time. And, mm. you know, and I was I knew that it's like, well, there had been several agents who several agents or managers who had been interested in me. And I had said, oh, I've decided to go with this one manager. So can't I just go to these other people and go like, well, good news, <laughs> now I'm available. And I'm like, no, you know, there I'm damaged goods now. I can't you didn't even possibly try? humiliate myself. And, you know, because it's going to be so humiliating if they're like, oh, the shoe's on the other foot now. And now we're going to say no. And, you know, you thought you were so good. And I said, no, that would be humiliating to do. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to, even though I've spent $100,000 on a screenwriting degree, I'm going to abandon screenwriting entirely because I can't imagine putting up with the humiliation of trying to get a new screenwriting manager after having been dropped by my old screenwriting managers. And that's it. And that was it. And then I just had to eat the cost of that degree. And mm. then eventually I ended up doing other things and finding success doing other things. And that was fine. And yes, I did put a lot of hard work into various things that I did. And, you know, I earned some money. But like you have to, I am just, this is why I wanted to do this episode, is just to get a sense of you having the perseverance and the grit that I did not have. And at one point I... Uh, you know, I've been a guest on various podcasts over the years. And at one point I was a guest on a podcast called On Grit, which was a profile <laughs> of people with grit. And I'm like going, really me? I am the, I have the least grit of anybody I know. So what? let's go ahead and bring this, James, to the point of like, what would you say to my friend? He So he wrote a novel that was um, sort of, you know, a globe hopping action novel. And okay. it is a lot of fun. And then he tried to sell it and couldn't. And then he wrote a YA thriller. And that is also a tremendous amount of fun. I also like that book a lot. Now he is writing a middle grade pirate, middle grade post-apocalyptic pirate novel. And it is the most fun of all of the things he is doing. And I'm going like, yes, I like this one the most of the things you have done you should keep going on this and finish it. He sent me some possible titles today. And I'm like, Jaren's, Jaren's. I don't believe in Jaren's and titles. 
But um, so, but he, so then, you know, and he's going like, should I self-publish? Should I go ahead and keep going? He, I don't know how many people he's queries. He also does like pitch fests. Mm-hmm. I take it you never did anything like pitch fest. You uh, that just gets you good at, at pitching. It doesn't get you good at storytelling. It gets you good at being good at pitch fests. Yeah, like I, I think I think there's. A, I mean, can I just say sidebar? If, if somebody can provide you an opportunity to do something that feels like you're making progress, um, then people are going to pay money for it because it's going to feel like you're making progress. Like, oh my gosh, I got third place in the pitch fest. But that's not what is going to help you. Like what's going to help you is going to be the messy experience of grabbing deep down in your soul and thinking about the people that you know and the stories that you know how to tell and finding a way to take this messy garbage from the most shameful places inside you and bring them up and put it into some kind of format that is halfway palatable to people and, and it, but then the fact that it's only halfway pal- palatable is the thing that's going to make it actually successful because it was fully palatable it would just become completely smooth and slip through everybody and and so but you have to bring it from that awful place you can't bring it from i'm going to cut and paste from like, everything that my prospective agent said that i should do you know um like it, it and so, but like doing a pitch fest or, or whatever is just going to make you good at pleasing people who can't help you. Um, and you're going to be, it, maybe you'll be like, oh my gosh, it's so great for five years running. I got first place in the pitch fest at the most generous way of looking at it. It's like, oh, this is a way to kind of like keep yourself sharp between projects and kind of like maybe make yourself aware of like how things get sold. But it's a way, you know, it's a way to meet potential agents. It's a way to say like, hi, you know, I'm an agent. I've agreed to take part in this pitch fest. I'm willing to hear your pitches. Pitch me. And then, you know, he pitches people and they say, I like this, you know, send me your full manuscript. Mm-hmm. It's just a way to, you know, it's a way to meet people. It's a way to do whatever. But yeah, no, nothing has come of it. Nothing has. I just have endless amounts of sympathy for this thing. And I had so much sympathy for you as you just went through all of this stuff. You know, I didn't know you the first time you went through this. We met because of your book. You know, we met very much in sort of a, uh, you know, I had read your book from afar and you read my blog from afar and I liked your book and you liked my blog. And then we met um, and uh, hit it off and became friends uh, from afar. You know, it was a long distance friendship for a long time until I ended up moving to Chicago. And I guess somewhat somewhat because of you, I did not, I did not say I want to move to Chicago to hang out with James Kennedy, but you... <laughs> Cleverly arranged it because your wife offered my wife a job. And uh, so that we ended up in the same city and then started a podcast together and went on to fame and fortune. But I, you know, I remember finding out that you're, that Tina Wexler, who I had pitched at this point, that she had dropped you. And that I remember just feeling just a tremendous amount of anguish on your part. And especially knowing the way I react to these things, knowing that I had been dropped by my screenwriting managers and just completely given up. And just feeling just absolute awe that you did not do that and just absolute on admiration that you passed that test of character that I had failed and that you had the grit, the stick to the determination to make this happen. How did you, like you took notes from your original agents, 
Mm-hmm. You took notes from them and you liked their notes and you did their notes. And then until the point where they said, okay, now you have to cut it in half so that we can sell it to these people. And you said no. And somehow convinced them to not drop you then, to go and stick with you and keep trying to sell it and sell it, even though um, you had said no to them, even though you had said, no, I'm not going to cut it in half. When the first time a manager told me, you have to make changes for me to represent you, then I said, well, forget it. You're not going to represent me. So I didn't tell it before that when I then had to call that manager back up and say, oh, actually, I'm signing with somebody else, partially because that person did not instantly tell me to add a threesome. I did not say that, but I just said, I decided to sign with someone else. You know, they're just a, a bigger manager, you know, and uh, this other person wants to represent me. And it's, I don't, I didn't say bigger. I said, I just said it was a better fit or something. I, I don't even know if I said anything. I just said, I've decided to sign with another manager. And he said he would ruin me in Hollywood. He, wow. I forget how he responded to this. I forget whether he actually wrote that in email or I think it was just on the phone. I think I was talking to his assistant on the phone and it's like, he says he's going to ruin you in Hollywood uh, for <laughs> saying you would sign with him and then saying you wouldn't sign with him. And this was my mentor's manager. So I was screwing up things for my mentor as mm-hmm. well by doing this. And then, and I did not respond the way I wished, I, the way I wanted to respond. What I wanted to say was, if you were big enough to ruin me in this town, you would be my manager. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I'm dropping you is because you don't have enough power to ruin me. And uh, indeed I did. But, uh, and of course, after I ended up having a bad relationship with the managers who signed me, I always wondered like, should I have stuck with that guy? And I'm like, no. So yeah, it is true that I took a bunch of notes from my agent, but I also took them in the spirit that I knew that they were not the final notes. Yeah. And there were some things that I disagreed with. I simply took the note to get it signed. And then when I, they, they, oh, cut this, cut that. And then when it came to the editor, I was like, I have these ideas of stuff that I want to add in. <laughs> and I put them in and they're in the book. So, <laughs> so that's fascinating. So there were things that your agent told you, you have to cut this for us to represent you. And you did. And then you just saved it on your computer. Yes. And then you pitched to the editor, adding it back in. And you were able to get the editor to add it back in. After. I didn't pitch it. I just like, like in the manuscript, I said, I have this idea. I'm going to put this in. I think this will make it funnier. And she's like, yeah, this is fine. Um, God, that takes so much balls, man. The balls on you. And oh, okay. I would like to, I, I put it to you. Do you think an agent reads a book after it's published? Oh, I God, guarantee no. you they don't. They do so, not. So, so that's all you need to know. Yeah. Like they're not going to they take, oh my gosh, this, this half page joke, you, you know, that he, he sets up that's kind of a little long and elaborate. Like I had cut that out. Oh, but they put it back in. What? No, <laughs> nobody's going to care. They, I, I think like the balls thing just like, like has a false premise that people care that much. You're just playing 12th level chess. You're just going like, <laughs> oh, okay, I'm going to play both ends against the middle and I'm going to figure out how to, you know, borrow from Peter to pay Paul and I'm going to figure out how to make this person happy now. And then, you know, eventually still get what I want. And that just takes so much determination. That takes so much grit. That takes so much perseverance. And I, I mean, my whole problem always was just that, like, as soon as anybody would say anybody didn't like anything I did, I would go, okay, then never mind. I just, I'll just never show it to anybody again. I didn't know, you know, because I always sort of had the feeling of like, if this is going to sell, everybody has to love it. And as soon as anybody says they don't love it, then that means nobody's going to love it. And uh, I'm you've, ne- you've never had, that. you've never had that instinct, which is fundamental to me, was which is 
I'll make you like it. <laughs> no. Well, that, I mean, yeah, oh my I mean, God, I, that, that is like my, like, that's my most fundamental instinct. I'll make you like it. Like, that's a wonderful for attitude for a writer to have. I think that is our number one. Okay, so this is our number one piece of advice to my writer friend is you have to take the attitude of I'll make you like it. So how does that work? I, 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 it just it, it comes out in in various ways, and one of them is like maybe just like chicanery. Like I, I'll I'll take it out for you, but I'll re, I'll, I'll reintroduce it elsewhere because I know like maybe you that one person you know decided to make this edit you know while eating a sandwich in New York <laughs> and, and and like being distracted by watching TV at the same time and not even really thinking about it. Maybe I don't know, but like but like they didn't put as much thought into that edit as I did. It, it, it as I did when I was writing it and how it fit in. It's like, yeah, I'll take it out so I can put it back in later. And you're not, you're never gonna look. Like also another thing I did is I with I, I haven't done this with my other two books, but with Order of Oddfish, absolutely unrepentantly ran out the clock. They, yeah. they would say, please make these changes. I was like, I'll absolutely make them, and then I'll wait until the day before they were due. I wait a couple days after that, and I was like, I made the changes, and I made like a third of the change. Um, I would say, I made the change. They're like, oh my God, we have to go to press. Um, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, um, the, like, balls, I, I, the balls on you, sir. But the thing is, I mean, I, I guess the laughs on me because, you know, the Order of Oddfish is not something that everybody knows about. However, I do feel like w- w- when I read the Goodreads reviews or like once every three months, I get some email from some rando. Who's like, I read this when I was 12. And now it's, you know, uh, you know, 10, 12 years, whatever, 14 years later, and I still think about it and I want to, could you please sign a copy of a hardcover for my girlfriend? I want to give it to her as a special present. Like that means a lot to me. And I don't think that happens to every book that came out in 2008. I think it happens to books that people fought for and they had a vision for. Yeah. I think the number one lesson here, James, is just, just perseverance, just perseverance. Like, I mean, let's even just get down to like... Bride of the Tornado, I read Bride of the Tornado, and you have a lot of respect for my opinion, and I, I was like, this is not for me. I could tell it was very good, but I was like, this is definitely not my sort of thing. I'm not a horror guy. I'm not a, I don't like disturbing stuff. And I definitely thought it was not your way back into being agented. I thought that like, because you had written a middle grade book called Frog Boy that I really liked, and I still really like. And I was like, that's, you know, you've been doing this 90-second Newbery, you've got all of this middle-grade connections, and you've written a really good middle-grade book, and dude, forget Pride of the Tornado, forget <laughs> Dare to Know. Look, Matt Bird is a little bit on the ball here. I think he knows what he's talking about. Push Frog Boy. And indeed, you did. You contacted your agent with Frog Boy based on <laughs> Matt Bird's terrible advice, and your agent was like, uh, no, dude. Uh, can't sell this. Uh, send me the other stuff, the stuff Mapper didn't like. And, uh, you know, it's not even didn't like, but send me the other stuff, the stuff that Mapper's like, you know, because I just thought you shouldn't be going adult. I mean, I just thought like you've spent all this time working on the 90 second Newbert. You've built all of this MG cred. Like, why would you go adult? And obviously I was wrong. And I've had stuff of mine that you have read and said, I hate it. And it's hilarious that you and I have a, a podcast about screening advice because you and I hate each other's work so much. <laughs> and I, you know, when you tell me I hate this, it's not for anybody, then I generally tend to abandon those projects. I have abandoned work because you didn't like it. And you have never abandoned work because I didn't like it. You just have 
a grit that I don't have. And you have had, in some ways, more success than I have. And you've got, oh my God, dare to know it's in fucking airports. That is so fucking awesome. Like, thank you. People are sharing this to your Facebook page. Like, how on earth did you get into airports? That's amazing. I don't know. I mean, I, I that's more the people, the marketing people at Quirk than anything. But I think it's it's probably just like, hey, we need to get rid of all these hardcovers that won't sell. Is you know, there's probably some complicated financial thing. But I still think it's perseverance. I don't think it's grit. I think the better word is cussedness. Cussedness. You have to love going against the grain. Like grit and perseverance just means, oh well. I got to go through this, but, you know, I guess this is what I need to do to to get successful. But cussedness means I love that they hate me and I'm going to prove to them I'm going to make you love me. Um, that's cussedness. Yeah. Uh, um, and I've never had cussedness. I have never. I hate I hate anybody not liking anything I do. <laughs> and I just, I just can't stand it. There is like that contrarian streak in me that is not always constructive. And obviously it is like blown up in my face many times in my life. However, it is also, I mean, that's also a little bit of a strength. It's also the secret of your success. Yeah. Well, that's what do I always say that uh, strengths and flaws are flip sides of each other. So your, what is your strength flaw combo? Cousinness. Or is it, I guess it's cussedness slash cussedness. Cussedness is your strength. Cussedness I guess cussedness slash perseverance, right? Like, uh, well, like, but cussedness like, is good. You're saying so it would right, be right. But I, I like, but like, usually when you hear the word cussedness, you don't think it's good. So you, if 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 we're to say this to somebody who is not alive to the vocabulary that I just tried to outline here, it would be cussedness slash perseverance, which yeah. is like the most boring. The most boring superpower you can have is perseverance. You know, <laughs> I think you, if you're going to choose a superpower, you like amazing talent that everybody recognizes immediately is a, <laughs> is much better than like I I really put in the time and I really suffered for long enough to get a minor success. But, I mean, um, you know, you had some thought in you where it's like, well, I don't need everybody to like it. I just need one agent to like it and i need mm-hmm. one publisher i need to find one agent that agent needs to find one publisher and then and then it has to get out to an audience and then somewhere in this country of 250 million people there will be people who want to read it and that is just we're hoping I'm for about like, 16 people we're hoping like 16 <laughs> i think we can break even i think one of the things i've tried to learn from you is this idea of i just need one i just need one agent i don't need to you know cuz it was so to me, like Betsy is someone who was like, I'm going to choose from amongst various managers. Betsy was like, I'm going to choose between various agents who are interested in me. I was in a situation when I picked my managers of getting to choose between various managers who were interested in me, you know, and that's very much the way I think of the way it should be is that there should be a pitting war. There should be, you, sh- you should be the next hot thing. And I really enjoyed being the next hot thing. And when I was not hot anymore, when I was not the next type thing, when there wasn't a bidding war and I was like, I'm going to have to go back hat in hand to these people. I said, forget it. I said, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and you, I don't think you have never been the next hot thing and you've never wanted to be the next hot thing that you have said, I well, am going great to, be... to be the next hot thing. It would be great for everybody to want to love you. I mean, but like you just can't rely on it. Right. Well, but, and also you love hearing from people that, Order of Entourage is my favorite novel. You like hearing, you like being an acquired taste. You like being someone who is 
you wrote a cult novel. I mean, it is a cult, a cult novel, but you wrote a cult novel. And I think it was somewhat intended to be a cult novel. I'm not sure that HarperCollins would have bought it if they'd known it was going to be a cult novel. But you, I think, knew it. And you were not at all unhappy with the fact that that's what it turned out to be. I'm not unhappy, but I did, in the back of my mind, think, oh, this is the next Harry Potter easy. You did? Oh, yeah. Like, I was like, oh, this is like Harry Potter Plus. It's great. Like, like, like I, I fixed it. Like, like, <laughs> thanks for the help, J.K. Rowling. But I kind of went to the next level here. Um, but the thing is, what I learned is that the next step in culture never comes from taking the thing from before and adding on to it. It comes from the pivot to something totally new. But you made your peace with that. You made your peace with not being the next J.K. Rowling. You kind of have to come to terms with the person that you are and and what you're capable of and what the world wants from you and what you're able to give to the world. And if you try to be more or less than that, you're going to fail. And I think you just have to go right in the pocket. And that is a very difficult lesson to learn, especially when you're young and you don't know who you are yet. My daughters always complain about their teachers saying, just be yourself. And they're like, like, what does that mean? And I want to say to them, but I haven't said it aloud to them, it's because you don't have a self yet. <laughs> you know, like, like, like you build a self, you build a soul over your life. And telling a 12 year old, be yourself is like worse than useless. Yeah. Um, you have to earn it. You, you earn yourself through choices. Yeah. And um, these are the choices that you make. And, and, and then choices learn, lead to other choices. You become a different person and maybe you become a person who becomes cussed. Maybe the person become a person who's a people pleaser. Maybe become a person who is really good at being successful. Maybe you become a person who can't get out of their own way. Um, but you kind of have to accept that person who you are, and that's going to kind of uh, make a difference on what your career is going to be if you're going to be an artist or anything, really. All right. Well, I think that was an excellent statement, excellent artistic statement. And uh, let's go ahead and wrap up there. So this is uh, this has been a very long recording. It's going to take me a long time to edit, but hey, I got all the time in the world. I'm unemployed. So let's go ahead. And <laughs> we've got more things that we were going to talk about um, soon. So hopefully it won't be forever until we have another podcast. But congratulations wholeheartedly on your new novel. That is fantastic. When does it come out? August. August. Uh, so we will spend more time promoting it before and after then. But that is fantastic. So, James, we will say goodbye to America. Goodbye, America. Goodbye, America. Okay, thanks. See you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Bride of the Tornado, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.